1: As you know, this show is a feverishly dancing member of the Agora Podcast Network, where we all go to feel the music in our bones and dance until they kick us out of the club with independent educational podcasts. Among those for whom the rhythm is their soul's companion are my colleagues Eric and Xander, hosts of Reconsider. This happenin' show, popular with all the cool cats and scenesters, covers timely and timeless social and political issues for liberal democracies, with a nonpartisan approach that helps listeners question their own beliefs. Hosts Xander and Eric break down and dissect the partisan storytelling, bring facts to bear, and help you make up your own mind. Plus, you'll learn how to better think for yourself as you listen. Be prepared to be challenged, and to learn and laugh along the way, and dance the night away. Incidentally, Eric and Xander will also be at this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. In our third year bringing together independent educational podcasters with their fans, this year we will once again be online. Our keynotes this year will be David Crowther of The History of England, Rudyard Lynch of What If Alt Hist, and Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World. They will be joined by Xander and Eric, myself, and over 40 other amazing hosts. It's over 24 hours of content for only 30 bucks, and if you use the code W2W at checkout, you'll get an additional 10% off and help me out as well. So head on over to the website, which I will link in the show notes, and buy your tickets today. Every month we give honor and praise to those who have strengthened the realm with monetary contributions and reward them with lands and titles. This month we have three donors. First, we have Michael, who shall be known from henceforward as Lord Michael of the dreaded Lichtenstein Marshes. Why'd I pick Lichtenstein? Next, we have Simon, who shall be known from this day to future days as Earl Simon, the matcher of the royal Sox. Next, we have donor Gregory who I dub Duke Gregory, the top sheet of the realm. In terms of Patreon, we have one new patron, Hunter, who shall be known from henceforward as Archbishop Hunter, Apostle to the Doggerlandians. And Intern Vincent of the Guild of Merchant Adventurers has increased his pledge and has been granted new lands and titles. As such, he shall be known now as Intern Vincent of the Guild of Merchant Adventurers, Lord of the open format desk slightly nearer the window. Since the last episode, I received several comments that I would like to share with you all about the episode on modern American Judaisms. However, the comments ended up being rather lengthy, so I'm moving them to the end of the episode, after some truncated closing music. This seemed a better solution than asking you all to endure a 20-minute long introduction or splitting the episode. So just remember, stay after the music for some feedback from members of the community. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this? Actually, you know, this this might be their story. I guess we're going to learn about that. That's weird. Huh. York, England. Somewhere between the year 1000 and the year 1010. And it is terrible to know what too many do often, those who for a while carry out a miserable deed, who contribute together and buy a woman as a joint purchase between them, and practice foul sin with that one woman, one after another, and each after the other like dogs that care not about filth, and then for a price they sell a creature of God, his own purchase that he brought at a great cost, into the power of enemies. Quote from Wolfstan of York, in his homily known as The Sermon of the Wolf to the English as republished by Dr. Alice Rio in Slavery After Rome, 500 to 1100.
0: Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning.
1: Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is Episode 74, Slavery Part 1, Theory. In the last year or so, we have been looking at those who did not fit into the three-way split of those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. This time out, we will be starting on an in-depth look at slavery, which I'm not sure whether it fits into that or into the normal run of episodes about... Other people in the Middle Ages. You may have a feeling about this already, but that may change over the course of these episodes. Now, I will admit, I didn't think I was going to do this. You will recall there was a major part of an earlier episode largely on this issue, and I really thought that was going to be it. But as I've done more research and reading on the Middle Ages, there was more and more material, and ultimately, when I put it to a vote of listeners on Twitter and Facebook, everybody voted strongly in favor of me covering this, so here we are. So, I am going to try and do this as thoroughly and quickly as I can so that we can finally move on, but I do think there's a lot of interesting material here, and I need to do it justice, and I think you'll all be pleased with the result. That preamble may pair oddly with my first question for the day, but I think it's worth asking why we should cover slavery at all. Beyond the fact that I have already covered it and the consistency issues that that raises, does Ben actually not have a plan? Slavery is typically not considered a major feature of the Middle Ages. Sure, in the early modern period, it re-emerged and ultimately reached horrific heights, and we are increasingly aware of the scope of slavery in the Roman Empire. But the Middle Ages themselves, particularly the early and central Middle Ages, they're supposedly remarkable for being a period without all that much slavery. Indeed, much of what makes slavery of the early modern period so horrific is the fact that it was perpetuated overseas by societies that had rejected the practice of mass-scale slavery at home. I mean... The Middle Ages had serfdom, but that's not the same thing, right? Well, it's precisely because of the details of this traditional narrative and the implications for the early modern rise of chattel slavery and all that that implies that I think we need to cover this topic more thoroughly here. Now, to frame this conversation, I just need to somewhat quickly restate the current received narrative under discussion. This narrative actually comes mostly from our old friend, Mr. Mark Bloch whose discussion of this topic is something modern historians ultimately have to respond to. It still is sort of the dominant received narrative, and his story went something like this. As the Roman state began to decline, more and more land ended up in the hands of mass-scale slave owners, which effectively took productive capacity outside the ability of the state to reach it. At the same time, the availability of slaves was in decline due to Roman military decline. So the Roman Empire began to impose more and more restrictions on the liberties of poor farmers to tax them more, to restrict their movements, and eventually was forced to put local government entirely in the hands of their rich neighbors due to lack of resources. At the same time, the Roman state began to pass more and more laws governing the use of slaves, an increasingly rare commodity, thus improving their conditions even as their value rose, economically. Somewhere after the fall of the empire, the social and political conditions created by these two trends created a situation where the two classes, free poor peasants and enslaved persons working on agricultural estates, effectively got squished together into a single class as a result of some stuff in the early middle ages. To put this in the terms of basic internet meme algebra, you start with the Roman slave system, plus question mark... Equals, in the 1100s, you have a whole bunch of serfs. Bloch suggests a number of things to explain the something-happens-here part of this equation, the question mark. Some of these suggestions are the economic processes I already mentioned. Other aspects of this, he suggests, are the rise of so-called colonies, which started out as planned settlements of military veterans, and, Bloch suggests, became classes of proto-serfs stripped of most liberties. However, the biggest factor, suggests Bloch, is the rise of Christianity, which created a vogue for manumissions or freeing slaves. Landlords wanted to free their slaves for the good of their souls, but they still needed their land to be worked, and so they came up with sneaky, backhanded systems where the freed people would still owe their former masters some service as part of their freedom. And unlike freedmen in the Roman Empire, this status could be inherited by their children. Sneaky, sneaky landlords. Whatever the cause, serfdom was the result, which is not exactly freedom, but was probably better than slavery, and allowed the gradual perception of this mass of workers in these societies to become seen as full members of their society by the time of the Central Middle Ages, which is something we cannot say for Jews, Muslims, lepers, and to some extent women. The process of developing civil rights for serfs would have to wait till the early modern period at the earliest. But at least they were seen as part of the society in the three-way split of the medieval class system. Those who worked were not resident aliens, they were not some ignored minority, they were just poor. And society needed poor people to work in order to function. As a result, even if they were never included in political discussions or their needs really taken into account, the church and the aristocracy did, on occasion, take notice of their conditions and had some concept of things that were going on with serfs, something that would not necessarily have been the case if they had been slaves. So serfdom is sort of an important step here. This narrative begs the question of how slavery even reemerged in the early modern period, If all the serfs are considered an essential part of the society of medieval Europe, who had the idea of doing slaves when people started exploring the New World? Well, part of the above formula that we previously discussed, as is unfortunately often the case with much of Mark Bloch, is a tendency to undervalue events in southern Europe. And so a corollary was developed to explain this situation. You see, slavery never really died out in Italy and Spain, and when these areas regained their importance in the later Middle Ages, and more importantly, when they were fully re-Christianized and rejoined Christendom, slavery was brought back into the European system. Incidentally, when Spain conquered the New World, they brought this archaic survival from the ancient world with them. Ultimately, it should be said that because southern Italy and Spain had relatively easy access to uh, Muslim-controlled regions they were able to convert the slaves that they took as part of the reconquest into a sustained chattel slavery system in those areas based on the importation of people who were seen as political outsiders in the slave systems of those areas. So this allowed it to be moral. Enslaving Christians had become ideologically wrong, but enslaving outsiders was within the scope of the ideology of the time. This is the story. There are, of course, a lot of problems with this received narrative, and a lot that is correct, which we will be discussing over the course of the next few episodes. But for today, let's suffice it to say that this narrative has a lot of implications that historians have been grappling with ever since. Unfortunately, much of the work on this topic got bogged down in some of the details of what Bloch got right or wrong, and in some sense, professional historians never really got around to some of the bigger questions. However, as I am not a professional historian, and because these issues are relevant to why slavery is important for us, I'm going to do the thing and talk about those big questions. For me, these questions stem from the relationship between slavery and serfdom and citizenship. This relationship is interesting. There is something there, and I think anyone who learns about it is taken by it, even if they don't fully articulate why. A common reaction is to say that serfdom was just slavery by another name. And that is a conversation I want to return to in a minute. But there's a more important point here, and so it's time for me to touch the third rail here and talk about slavery in the United States. In the United States, we inherited a slavery system that was uniquely barbaric in world history. Then we fought an extraordinarily bloody civil war to get rid of it. And at the end of the war, the anti-slavery forces were victorious but there was no consensus as to what should replace slavery or how the former slave states should be governed to protect the civil rights of the formerly enslaved. To make a long and tragic story short, this is the story of Reconstruction, the former slave owners in the South were able to regain control of the local governments and impose a series of laws that robbed the former slaves of many of those rights that they had just been given. Or one, because many of them were in the army. Politically, these were the Jim Crow laws, but economically, this manifested as the sharecropping system. In this system, the former slaves were kept on the land as tenant farmers. They were not allowed to leave. Usually, debt was used as a fig leaf to justify this. The sharecroppers paid a huge portion of their crops to their landlords, and then probably just sold them the rest. This system was maintained by a justice system largely controlled by the landlords, and those who broke the rules could be thrown into penal servitude. If this sounds like slavery under another name, yes. But more importantly, it sounds to me like serfdom. Right down to details like the rise of a black-slash-commoner middle class of capitalists who were able to get very wealthy but had trouble becoming members of the body politic. Now, the history of the United States has a lot of unique features not present in Europe in the Middle Ages, not the least of which being racism. That little chestnut pretty obviously made everything way, way, way worse. But as you examine places where slavery has ended across the world, one disturbing image comes to the surface that seems to demand explanation or examination or something. From the British territories in the Caribbean, to Haiti, to medieval Europe, to the former Spanish colonies, some form of enforced tenancy system seems an almost inevitable denouement to the end of slavery. How you feel about this statement probably says a lot about how you view the possibilities of success of radical versus gradual change in general. My own bias here is that gradualism is preferable, but revolutionary change is sometimes necessary. But I'm not actually bringing all this up to make a grand sociological or political point. The point I'm trying to make is that if there is an answer to be found to these interrelated questions of social change and human society of slavery and racism and public policy and who we want to be as people, some of the raw data for that answer will come from a proper understanding of what happened in Europe in the early Middle Ages. I'm going to try to present some of that raw material in the next few episodes, and as we go on in this series, I will try, as usual, not to present a bias towards an answer to any of these questions, if for no other reason than because I don't know where I fall myself. Not really. But I think we all owe it to ourselves to gather the data. Now, let's get back to that most common initial reaction to learning about serfdom, that serfdom and slavery don't sound very different. Medievalists are usually very much at pains to quickly say that serfdom and slavery are very different things. Certainly, in terms of the kind of slavery experienced in the US, in the modern historical period, that is true. But the very concept of differentiating the two begs a question that historians of serfdom avoid, but which historians of slavery have to confront almost immediately. What is a slavery anyway? By now, of course, you should all know that when I rhetorically ask for a definition of a simple word, it's going to end up being a mind-bending philosophical journey. But in this case, the definitional problems are actually fundamental to the discussion we will be having over the next few episodes. The problem should be clear as soon as, you know what, let's start simple. Take a minute here and metaphorically sit down and start to put out in front of you all the things you know about
0: historical slavery off the top of your head. I'll give you 30 seconds. That was 15 seconds, but I'm impatient. Okay, here's what I have. I'm leaving to one side
1: most of the stuff about slavery in the US for now. Slavery has existed in every settled human society we know about, and in most of the non-settled ones as well, up until the 19th century when it was banned by the British Empire and they used their gunboats to make this international. There are a few societies we can call slave societies, due to the central place that slavery had in their society and economy, a list which includes most of the colonies of the Western Hemisphere up until 1833, the United States until 1865, the Roman Empire, the city-state of Athens, amongst others. The Vikings had slaves, some of which were part of their extended households and were called thralls. Others were sold on down the Russian river system to Byzantium in the Middle East. Slave trading was a major part of the early medieval economy, though it was not for domestic markets. The word slave is etymologically based on the word Slav, the tribal people that settled most of Eastern Europe after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and the cognates of this word are used all across Europe, even in Latinate countries. Hey, wait, uh, what? The word for slave came after the empire, even in Italy, and is not based on a Latin root. What did the Romans call slaves? Well, that depends, actually. While the Romans did have a stable legal concept of slavery in their legal system, over the course of the empire, a few different words were used. Initially, it was servus, but then a girl slave could be called ancula, which is actually just the word for girl. Uh, Similarly, puer is just the word for boy, but it could also mean a slave male of any age. A freedman could be called a liberti or a mancipuli, Depending on who you asked, a colony might count as a slave or a freedman or neither. While we're talking about etymology, it's just worth saying that the word servus evolved etymologically in northern Europe into a variety of words for servant, as did the various derivations of puer and ancula. This shift may have been what required the importation of another word for the term of slave. But surely, at least, Roman slaves all sort of lived under a similar set of legal restrictions. Well, sort of. The Roman concepts of slavery seem to have been created for household slaves, and like other members of the household, their life was in the power of the pater familias, or the male head of household. But then their position as legal property meant that the concept of the household was expanded somewhat. Agricultural slaves might never see their owner, as they lived out on the estate growing cash crops for sale in the Roman urban centers. Oh, but other slaves were sort of like turnkey businesses. The owner would give them tools and a shop and come by every so often to collect the profits of the business, sort of like a human version of one of those ATM machines you see in convenience stores. Or there were slaves who worked in administration, running the owner's business, doing bookkeeping and stuff like that. Some slaves were even tutors in Roman families, a role that would morph into being an advisor in some cases. The legal status they enjoyed was theoretically common across all slaves, but the idea that the business administrator of Emperor Hadrian was regularly subject to judicial torture in order to have his testimony be legally admissible in court is somewhat comical at a practical level. Then of course we just need to recognize that in the late empire a variety of laws were passed against killing slaves and generally governing how they could be used. Something which sort of upends many of our modern conceptions of slavery which are based in the chattel slavery of the modern era. How can a slave have rights? We are already in a place where a lot of our basic facts should start making us question the idea that there is a coherent definition of slavery. If there isn't even an etymological continuity for the term in Latinate languages like Italian, or even much coherence in Roman legal doctrine, what chance is there that the term slavery actually signifies anything coherent across, let me remind you, literally every settled civilization for which we have written records in all human history up until 1833. This is a tough circle to square, We you could choose to blame translators of the modern era for imposing their anxieties about slavery onto earlier systems and try to say that each different kind of status in each civilization and era was somehow unique. But I do think that's too simplistic. Though there are differences, it's clear that there is something about this concept that finds resonance across hundreds of thousands of societies. A social status where a person is the property of another person, or even a corporate entity, and as a result is purged of all previously existing social status and political rights, That seems to be something that finds harmonies in the legal structures and political anxieties of many societies, particularly in Eurasia, even if the specifics vary wildly. And so historians on the topic end up on grand quests to find some sort of agreeable definition. Before I go into a description of their approaches, let's have a podcast footnote to talk about my sources. Ahem. Podcast footnote. Many of the sources I have consulted in this show dealt with slavery in some way or another, and particularly with the concept of the slide into serfdom, which they dated as happening somewhere between 800 and 1000. Notably, of course, are my stalwart standbys of Michael McCormick and Chris Wickham. Mark Bloch, of course, is relevant as well, though sadly some of his works that dealt with this subject most directly have never been translated into English. Given that he is notoriously difficult to translate due to his highly technical vocabulary and labyrinthine sentence structures, this is definitely not a plea for one of you to undertake some translations for me. It's just a statement of what is. This is doubly true because I have a much more modern source, and it is great. Dr. Alice Rio's Slavery After Rome is going to be my main source for these episodes. The book is extraordinarily well-researched and thorough, despite her apology in the introduction that it might be less comprehensive than she would prefer. As this is an early publication in her relatively young career, I can only assume that in 30 years or so she will publish an updated version that will consist of 19 volumes, three quarters of which will consist only of footnotes, and some sort of injectable learning product to help you absorb the entire thing. For now, the present version of the work is a modest 259 pages of main text, and while the technical details can bog a person down, her prose is enjoyable and she has a real personality. If you're interested in the topic, I would recommend it. Incidentally, she actually had a podcast with a co-host for a few years there called Medieval History for Fun and Profit. Sadly, while the RSS feed is technically still up, it's not been updated in forever, and it's impossible to actually download the episodes, so the hosting may have gone away. If Dr. Rio is out there, I would love the opportunity to hear the old show, or even interview her for this one. I owe a great intellectual debt to her for these episodes, and as usual, everything insightful is due to reading the work of her and her listed colleagues, while the outrageous mistakes I'm about to make or have already made are entirely my own fault. End podcast footnote. So, in the historiography, Dr. Rio describes three ways historians tend to try to describe and define slavery in terms of legal status, economics, and lived conditions. Inevitably, no approach is fully consistent with the evidence as Dr. Rio interprets it, and I will conclude the episode by discussing two other approaches, one of which is hers. Legal status seems like the most basic way to grapple with the idea of slavery. After all, slavery is a condition that Orlando Patterson famously described as a social death. A situation where a person becomes the actual property of another person to be done with as that person sees fit. All their other previous social connections and capacities and identity features are stripped away. Effectively, they have no rights. And rights are the concern of the legal system. So they're beyond the legal system. Right? Well, in some legal systems, that was certainly the case. Our modern Western legal systems concern themselves first and foremost with rights. And all else flows from that. The Roman legal tradition saw protecting Roman citizens from slavery as its primary goal, but there are plenty of other legal traditions that had different motives, and there are plenty of slave-owning societies in history that had no functioning legal system at all. The Middle Ages are notable here for both having a legal tradition that in many areas was more focused on conflict resolution rather than rights, and for having many areas where the legal system as such broke down almost entirely. More broadly, I will ask you to harken back to the episode I did on legal codes as historical evidence. As I discussed in that episode, an episode that I should say was catalyzed by reading Dr. Rio's book, I noted how legal evidence is not always what it seems. We'll get into slavery-specific examples next episode, but most pertinently here is the observation in that episode that just because a law code was passed, it doesn't mean it was followed. To take a modern example, just because the French government imposed the Code Noir on the landowners in Haiti, giving slaves some legal protections, it doesn't mean that it was ever really followed in practice, at least in most cases. Looking at lived conditions seems like the next logical step. If the legal evidence of how a thing should work isn't accurate, we need to find out how they did work. But here, there be dragons. Beyond the fact that this kind of evidence can be rather difficult to find in the early Middle Ages, the basic reality is that slavery is a social construct. It isn't an objective description of anything real. Certainly, the suffering endured by slaves was real, but it wasn't something that could be said to unify every person in history who was given the social status of slave, or even all the people in any one time period or place. An attempt to find something in terms of material conditions that unifies slaves will lead rapidly to the conclusion that workers in the demonic mills of the Industrial Revolution had a lot in common with chattel slaves in the American South and on Roman agricultural estates, but had very little in common with Danish thralls, or the Brahmin slaves in India, or the Greek tutors of the brats of the Roman patricians. And while this observation may have some relevance for Andrew and his ongoing quest to insert celebratory communist orchestral music into every single episode of this show, it isn't actually particularly helpful in understanding the thing that was slavery, how it developed, how it ended, and what the processes involved might tell us about how humanity conducts these kinds of change in status. All such an observation tells us is that people of low economic status are often very poorly treated, which, you know, isn't exactly a revelation. Economists would seem to have more to say here, but they bring some of their own baggage to the table that we need to deal with. To the economists, the story of this transition is that as the empire fell, it became less profitable to keep large groups of slaves, and so the landlords stopped doing that. This is then used as evidence by economists of other eras to show that keeping slaves in general is actually unprofitable when they talk about other eras in history. If you're wondering, yes, this is tautology. <laughs> I'm being a bit unkind, but the problem is, if that old yarn that keeping slaves is so economically unprofitable, why was anyone ever doing it in the first place? Why did people ever have slaves? The first economist to make this argument was, Adam Smith, argues that slave owners are some sort of species of ignorant, uh, and that their prejudices are keeping them from realizing the potential productivity of a free worker given the proper incentives. Many other economists have basically followed on from versions of this line. Sadly, it probably isn't true. I mean, maybe in the long term, but like, long term. Modern studies of plantation areas in places as far flung as Muslim Spain and the American South are pretty clear. When you're able to not pay your workers and force them at gunpoint to work themselves to death, and then replace them with a new human being for a relatively low price, you make a lot of profits. This probably shouldn't be a huge shock, really, but it's an ugly truth that, you know, is kind of unpleasant. If there's no financial or legal disincentives to abusing your workers, then abusing your workers will make you money. So, more astute economic historians of the early Middle Ages, Bloch amongst their number, focused on the requirement for cheap replacement slaves. Mass-scale slavery was profitable under the early and mid-years of the empire because the Roman army was taking so many slaves in war, and then because the Roman economic system hoovered up many other slaves from the surrounding areas. When the empire stopped expanding and had some economic troubles, no more slaves, and slowly a major economic decline followed. I have followed this line myself, and I think it has some merit, but it should be said that it took a very, very long time for the empire to collapse after they stopped expanding, and there were a lot of other factors involved in their economic decline, messing with the currency being a big one. Still, a declining buying power to bring in new slaves should be considered part of the story of the decline in the profitability of slavery at the end of the empire. We will cover some more economic factors in later episodes, but to return to the question of the definition of slavery, this economic discussion ultimately just sort of misses the point. It tells us a fair amount about the wider contexts of slavery, but doesn't really help us zero in on what slavery was, or very much about how it happened or how it moved from slavery to serfdom to citizenship. It just sort of says that it did happen. Slavery stopped being profitable, and other methods of extracting labor were used instead. The how question is ultimately the focus of Dr. Rio's hypothesis, and for us, I think there will be a lot of value in her approach. Essentially, her argument is that slavery isn't a thing out there in the ether, like some kind of ideal platonic form. Instead, slavery is a human social construct, and like all social constructs, it has to be constantly redefined and recreated by its participants. This may sound weird and scary, so let me give you a relatable example. In the last episode, Ira and I discussed how we practice our identity as Jews. We didn't phrase it that way, but that's what we were doing. While for us, the process of talking about that bit of our identity was reflective, based on us talking about our past experiences, knowledge, and studying that we've done, and trying to explain what that past experience meant to us, the conversation was also creative. We were reinforcing to each other bits of narrative and signs that helped construct a concept of what Jewishness means to us even if we live our Jewishness in very different ways. And you out there, particularly the Goyim, it was almost entirely a creative process, as you were being told a whole bunch of things about what Jewish identity is and feels like to some of the people who live it that you didn't know before. So that's just new information. A similar thing could be said about any bit of a person's identity that they live and experience with other people. It's even true about how we use language, which is how we are able to understand each other even as definitions of words subtly change with usage over time. Another analogy. Old school magnetic tape players. If there's any kids out there who never had cassettes or VHS tapes, you're lucky. It was crummy technology. Don't let old people act like they're better than you. For many years, they had trouble making magnetic tapes a marketable product. Because in order to detect the magnetic fluctuations on the tape, they had to use a magnet. And that magnet would destabilize the magnetic particles on the tape, thus effectively erasing the recording as it was played. You can't observe something without interacting with the thing. What they eventually figured out was the use of a small, very simple computer-like device that essentially re-recorded the information back onto the tape as it plays. You know, the information is effectively split. Some of the information goes to the speakers and shoots out into the room or, you know, the TV. Uh, And some of the information goes back to a second magnet that is re-recording the information back onto the tape as it goes. Now, this re-recording process is inevitably not perfect. And so the tapes degrade over time, which is why it's an archaic technology and not some, some kind of marker of your moral superiority. Get over yourself. More pertinently to this show, there's some evidence that our brains work in a very similar way, which means that these tape recorders are a useful metaphor for how the very act of accessing and living an aspect of our identity, be that enjoying history or being a Roman slave, subtly changes the full definition of what that thing is, because the way you as an individual live that identity changes the sum total of all possible ways that identity can be lived. The one thing about this analogy that is deceptive is that changes to identity cannot be made by an individual acting entirely on their own. Like I can't get up one day and claim that part of my identity is that I am a gloom foam. No one will know what that is because I just made up that word. Gloom foam. It's a fun word, but it's meaningless. Or if I tried to tell people that I was a teacup or an artichoke, they would not actually treat me like a teacup or an artichoke because those words have widely agreed agreed upon definitions that preclude me from partaking in their status. However, if I were a potter or a farmer and I made a new kind of teacup or grew a new kind of artichoke, my actions would have slightly changed the accepted understanding in a society of what the words teacup or artichoke generally represent. This process is not mechanical. There might be people out there who object to my new kind of teacup. They might say that teacups need to meet certain criteria, say that an ability to hold tea is not met by my new creation, the colander teacup. Others might disagree, and there might end up being some conflicting definitions of what a teacup can be. Changing definitions that are smaller are more likely to be widely accepted, while bigger ones are more likely to be harder to convince people to accept. In fact, most of the time, the changes that happen are so small that none of the people involved are actually even aware they're doing it. There is a process of presentation of new concepts and general acceptance and negotiation and debate. But it sort of happens at a sort of subconscious level. Some person on the food network makes a new version of pie, and it's just slightly different from the other one. And they think they're being fun and inventive, and now pie has a slightly wider definition than it did before. This is usually how languages change over time, as an example. Of course, specific changes aren't actually inevitable. People can fight back against changes they don't like, and institutions, like legal and educational systems, have a major role in formalizing shared assumptions, making them explicit, and limiting drift in shared concepts. Whether you see this as totalitarian state control or something necessary to maintain coherence in society probably depends on the situation and your point of view. However, no matter how powerful they are, they can never stop this drift completely some sort of change in the large scale will happen eventually as a society's needs change. This is just a fact of life. Regardless of whether they are aware of it or not, the interplay of individual innovation and a need for shared consensus results in a kind of negotiation, where people seek change or preservation of understandings that meet their own particular personal or group needs, with the final result being a matter of what people actually accept in practice. So return to slavery and Dr. Rio... In her view, slavery was not a singular thing throughout all time and space, it was a social construct, and like all social constructs, it was actually a process where shared assumptions were constantly being created, redefined, and edited, based on the needs of society at large, the individuals involved, and whatever controls were in place in the form of institutions. During the Roman Empire, this process was shaped by the economics of the time, the political needs of the empire's ideology, the institutional strength and structure of the political system, and the power of rich people. These factors ultimately played out in terms of the power dynamics created between those who claimed to own slaves and those who found themselves claimed as slaves in the empire. As the Roman Empire fell, the economic situation collapsed and legal institutions weakened and fragmented. The ideology of the empire remained... But in these new conditions, the ideology needed to take on new interpretations to be relevant. This was all reflected in the final negotiations between claimed owners and claimed slaves. Ultimately, the results, which we will examine over the next few episodes, were so varied as to make the use of anything other than a technical term unnecessarily confusing. Essentially, calling all these people slaves is just kind of deceptive because there's just so much going on. Dr. Rio adopts the word unfreedom or an unfree person to refer to to slavery or a slave. I'll follow her to this to some extent. I may just use slave because it's got fewer syllables. But, uh, you know, the, the point here, I think, is valid that when we say slave, like I've spent most of this episode explaining, we feel like we have this connotational connection between what was going on in Rome and what would happen later in the United States that may not even be realistic. There is one last definitional methodology historians have used in discussing slavery, and that is to consider the word to be an example of family resemblances. This term was somewhat famously coined by Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was attempting, and failing, to find a way to define the seemingly simple word game, as in Parcheesi, Baseball, Game Theory, Halo 3, and Solitaire. As those examples may help you see, the concept of a game is one that it has massively frustrated linguists and philosophers for many years, as there is no characteristic that actually covers all or even a supermajority of the possible examples. Wittgenstein's solution was to say that we could define the term by listing characteristics that were common amongst many games, while forcing ourselves to become comfortable with the reality that none of these characteristics would cover all games. While this vagueness, which is a technical philosophical term actually, While this vagueness will not provide an analytic definition, it will allow us to start to understand how the concept of a game can be applied to different kinds of activities, and understand the various relationships between groups of games. Dr. Rio acknowledges this approach, but ultimately puts it aside as too static. If the goal of studying medieval slavery is to understand where it came from, and how it changed into the serfdom of the later Middle Ages... This kind of definition risks a kind of tautology where slavery is defined as all the ways slavery existed up until some arbitrary point, at which it is now called serfdom. Using such a definition would make it difficult to show change, though there is another way, that is to very thinly focus your sample. Rather than defining all slaveries across all of time and space, define slavery as it existed in the 800s in Francia, then in 900, and so on, and thus showing how the definition changed in different places over time. As it happens, this ended up being more or less Dr. Rio's approach from a methodological perspective, though she framed her discussion around a process based definition, as I discussed earlier. So, how about me? What's my definition, and what am I going to do in these episodes? Well, I have to say that I find Dr. Rio's explanation and research very convincing. Ultimately, I find the concept of vagueness in the definition to be more useful than Dr. Rio did especially in the context of a layperson talking to other laypersons, but I think it's clear that the dimension of time really complicates the usefulness of such a proposition. Dr. Rio's approach seems to me to have the most hope of getting us back to being able to have a coherent narrative of change over time and not trying to make sense of a pile of different data points robbed of context. Finally, given the really serious issues with terminology that come down to us from the imprecision of medieval Latin and the changing etymologies of what we call slavery terms in this period, I think using broad and technical terms like unfreedom is probably the only way to have this conversation without asking all of you to take a few classes in Latin linguistics first. As for how I structure these episodes, I am roughly going to follow Dr. Rios' presentation, albeit with some simplifications in some places and some elaborations in others. I think next time I would like to go over Bloch's model in more detail, the evidence that has proven it to be incorrect, and some of the other models that have been suggested. This will include a discussion of the kinds of evidence we have available to us about slavery in this period. Two episodes down the line, I think, I would like to discuss the different types of roles slaves could fulfill in different regions in the early Middle Ages, and the processes that created these roles. This will probably require more than one episode. Finally, as usual, I will have an episode wrapping all this up with a summary of how this evidence discussed shows change in slavery over time in different places in Europe, and what, if anything, this tells us about how slavery evolved into serfdom and how slavery was set to continue into the early modern period. That is all to come, but to hear it, you will need to tune in to the next episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking around to hear from your fellow listeners. There's an old saying in the Jewish community, two Jews, three opinions. I think that was certainly true of the conversation between myself and Ira last episode, and inevitably in the time since then I have received emails from two of our co-religionists with comments on the episode. Given the previously established rate of 1.5 opinions per Jew, it follows that since we now have four Jews involved, we will have something like six opinions. I shall thus endeavor to convey the substance of their remarks while summarizing for time. First up, we have Rabbi Sendler, whose name you may remember from past episodes. He has contributed materially to the sources used in this show, in addition to being a scintillating interlocutor in our email correspondences. He's also a member of the Haredi community. The Haredi might be better known to you colloquially as something like Hasidic or ultra-Orthodox Jews, though these terms are both problematic as we will discuss in a few minutes. In any case, Rabbi Sendler noted that he took a mixed handful of blood pressure medications and antacids before sharpening his pencil and sitting down to listen to the last episode. In spite of this preamble, his letter was, as always, well thought out, extremely well researched, and had all his sources cited in the text. As is my usual want in this show, I'm going to take this wonderfully crafted piece of writing and cruelly summarize most of the points here. The bima was a topic of conversation between myself and Ira, particularly in terms of its location in relation to the congregation. Rabbi Sendler was able to elaborate on a whole list of commentaries by various generations of rabbis on this topic, but the key feature seems to be that in Haredi and other Orthodox communities, the tradition actually requires a centrally located bima. The main practical point is to ensure that the congregation can hear the rabbi and the cantor, though there are a variety of other scriptural and Talmudic reasons for this requirement, also relating to the placement of the Torah in its storage area. A particularly noteworthy reason given is that reform congregations do it the other way, with the bima in the front, and no one wants to be like the reform congregations. Screw those guys. Of course, in reform and conservative congregations, hearing the rabbi and cantor is not a problem because we use microphones and PA systems, but the use of electricity on holidays is, I believe, very much banned in orthodox traditions. Rabbi Sendler will undoubtedly correct me if I am mistaken, but I would assume that such is the case in Haredi congregations specifically. Congregations with PA systems, I should just say, get around the rules here with help of the institution of the Shabbos Goy. Okay, let's have a podcast footnote. Post-podcast footnote. So as Ira and I discussed, there are a whole slew of things that you can't do on Shabbat and other holidays because they are considered to constitute work, as defined in Appendix C, subsection 23 of the rules. As a little joke, there is no appendix, there is just the text and about 5,000 years of commentary. Anyway, some of these rules have been interpreted over the years to preclude the use of electricity on Shabbat or the Sabbath. Basically, the justification I've been told is that because electricity is a spark, and sparks are how you light fires, and lighting fires on Shabbat was considered work by the Iron Age tribesmen and women that wrote the rules. Now, if your fire was already lit before Shabbat, you don't need to put it out, and so that has been interpreted to mean that if you turn a device on before Shabbat, you can keep it on, but you can't flip the switch or knowingly take any positive action to engage or disengage the device. Now... As we are no longer observing our rituals in a tent on the side of a sand dune, these rules create some practical problems. The initial issues were faced by people in northern Europe, living in the wind-bleached tundras of Russia, who, if they didn't have a fire in their house, that could be a problem. In terms of modern-day issues, it turns out that running a large building like a synagogue is pretty complicated. There's a lot of stuff that can break in a large community building, especially when a lot of people are in it and their kids are running around, getting into trouble, like I used to. And just in terms of safety, there's some things that arguably need to happen even on Shabbat, like locking the doors after services are done, or if something breaks in, like, the stairway and needs to be fixed to let people leave. And, you know, in these days of environmental consciousness, leaving the lights on all weekend in an empty building for hours is just, it's not a great thing. As a result, throughout the years, many Jews in general, and temples in particular, have employed a so-called Shabbos Goy, which is to say a non-Jewish person whose job it is to take care of various tasks, particularly on holidays. Initially, this was often a non-Jewish person from the village who would come over and light everyone's fires in the morning or something like that. These days, they are generally maintenance crews in the synagogue who take care of various tasks around the building and keep everything running. A key part of this arrangement is that the Jewish individuals involved, be they a private person needing their fire lit in a shtetl in Russia, or a member of the congregation or the rabbi or whatever, they're not allowed to go up to this Shabbos during a holiday and ask them to do something. Everything has to be arranged beforehand, or the person has to observe the problem on their own initiative and correct it. If a member of the congregation were to ask for this work to be done, that would be as bad as doing it themselves. As usual, every Jewish movement and community interprets this differently. So to reiterate, this person's job essentially is usually arranged beforehand through some sort of negotiated contract with money and everything being exchanged beforehand. But no money can be exchanged on Shabbat because that's also a thing. That's a no-no. And the people involved generally can't ask the person to do the thing on Shabbat. The person needs to like See that the fire is out and it, Or see that the lights have turned off and turned them back on. Something like that. As usual, every Jewish movement and community interprets this differently. And there are many communities that don't think it's that bad to ask. There's many communities that don't think this is necessary at all. And of course, if all this seems like cheating to you, it seems like cheating to a lot of Jews as well. Some communities just refuse to engage in the practice of having Shabbos goys, and for those that also refuse to compromise on the other rules about work on the Sabbath, this ends up posing, creating sort of natural limits on the size and layout of congregations. Other congregations, notably in the reform community, tend not to really bother with the legalistic sophistry and just fix them things that, you know, turn the microphone back on if it turns off or whatever, but... I should say that the congregations that I've been part of use things like timers and things like that to make it less of an issue. There's motion sensors in the bathroom and things like that. And they did have non-Jewish maintenance crews, for what that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> and just to reiterate and clarify this, I should note that the Shabboskoy is not a thing that's limited to the reform and conservative movements. As much as there's a lot of diversity in the Jewish community as a whole, there's also a ton of diversity in the various different communities that we sort of group together as the Orthodox. Some Orthodox congregations have Shabbos goys. I'm thinking off the top of my head, there's a fairly famous one in Israel that's just been there forever that's got a long-standing relationship with this one family of Palestinians who comes over and, you know, locks the door every Friday night. Anyway, some Orthodox congregations have Shabbos goys, some don't. In terms of the audio system in a synagogue, you could argue that if you leave the microphone on, you aren't taking any positive action if it just happens to pick up the noise you make when you talk. And if this just happens to make it easier for the old biddies in the back to hear you, then that's great. Or you could argue that come on, this is intentional, and because your voice is vibrating the diaphragm of the microphone, causing an electric current to travel, that you are doing the equivalent of flipping a switch thousands of times a second. And then you could buy a round of beers and sit around a pub arguing both sides of this debate in circles for hours, and everyone would just do what their congregation had always done, but you all have had a very good time at the pub and be a little bit snookered on your way home. End pre-podcast footnote. Two, the Jewish concept of hell. In our conversation, Ira and I were in perfect agreement that there is no Jewish hell. Rabbi Sendler wrote about half a page single-spaced of citations showing that in the period between the destruction of the Second Temple and the start of the Reform Movement, this was not a debate because most Jews clearly believed in something like a hell, or at least a reward and punishment system after death, though possibly not Maimonides, depending on your interpretation, and I will leave the debate to religious scholars. I was raised not believing in a hell, as was Ira, but it is absolutely a well-taken point that not all Jews necessarily follow this view. Number three, representations of Chahredi. Rabbi Semler took some issue with our failure to fully describe the more orthodox end of the religious spectrum. He is particularly not fond of the term ultra-orthodox, something I have endeavored to respect in this discussion. I have two main responses. First, my stock answer in any of these episodes is going to be that I think interviewing a single person about their life makes it easier to humanize traditions other listeners are not familiar with, but it is also inherently limiting in terms of the perspective of the interviewed. It's absolutely fair to say that an interview of a conservative Jew by a reformed Jew is not going to properly characterize the diversity of the Orthodox communities. But we did say that up front. I am, as always, happy to do more interviews in the future, though I do want to get some Lutheran or Calvinists up in here soon to remind people what this show is actually all about. A second wider point that I can make in response to Rabbi Sembler's comment is that I'm actually somewhat uncomfortable with the framing Ira used of the Jewish community in the United States as being on a spectrum of levels of observation. This view can be an easy way to explain the differences between the groups to children or to outsiders, but it is simplistic and tends to favor certain narratives. Those narratives tend to be somewhat hostile to the reform community, I have to say. For those on the orthodox end of the spectrum, it lets them claim to be the OG Jews, the ones doing it right in the face of a hostile world. It lets people in the conservative community claim to be the sensible middle, establishing a reasonable compromise between tradition and modernity. For those of us in the Reform community, we tend to reject the spectrum. A person can choose to not follow all the rules, but spend all their time thinking about Torah and being active in their community, and we tend to see that as a person being more observant than someone who follows every rule out of habit, but does nothing for their community and never wrestles intellectually with the Jewish tradition. I like to see the different communities as having their own entirely legitimate interpretations of the tradition, and not based on defining themselves against the resented outsiders. But then, as a reform person, I may benefit from this narrative as much as the other movements benefit from the spectrum narratives. So again, there's no clear right answer, and your mileage may vary. I will just say that actually in conversation with uh, both Rabbi Sendler and Ira at various points, people have been surprised that at the spectrum of possibilities that are possible within the reform movement, and that itself was something I found interesting. Apparently back in the day, reform was very hostile to anyone being very observant. These days, the reform movement tends to reward people for following more rules and doing that kind of thing if they want to, if it's meaningful for them, but there's also no shade if they don't. It's just, you find a thing that's going to be good for you. That kind of thing. Okay, another commenter. Listener Aiden put the following as the subject line in his email, and I quote, A mildly peeved letter from a solidly mediocre New England Reform Jew. End quote. Needless to say, I was very amused by this, and someday I may write an autobiography with that title. Aiden had a number of small corrections. These include, Aiden noted that there is a distinction between a shul and a synagogue based on the educational facilities included. I will say for myself that this has not been my experience, but then I have not belonged to any congregation without Hebrew school accommodations. My grandpa always used to call it shul. Everyone in my community growing up called it a synagogue, and my dad switches back and forth depending on who he was talking to. So Aiden may be entirely right. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Another topic was the sources of authority, or lack thereof, of rabbis in the Jewish community. A key point was that, while the Torah makes explicit provisions for a priestly caste with power over ritual, rabbis are not those priests. They have come to fulfill many of the same roles as priests, but they can't claim direct divine authority, and so they have to earn their status via educational attainment. This tendency towards status as rabbi moving within families was a reflection of the ability of fathers to educate their own sons and not a system of inheritance. I would generally agree with all that, but one missing piece that's worth noting is that unlike many religions of the Middle Ages, Judaism basically never had any kind of stable interface with secular power structures. While rabbis as community leaders would work with local royalty and nobility to establish peaceful relations, and while these relationships did sometimes manifest in the authorities taking sides in theological debates, this was pretty rare in any kind of extreme way. They they would help police the borders, as I talked about back in my earlier episodes, but not like, okay, there's a big debate, side A, you're right, side B, you're wrong. More often the reality was that the relationships between the Jewish community and the secular authorities were one of suspicion, and one that had to be renegotiated regularly as crises came up. The protagonists involved died, and generally as the situation changed. It's also worth saying that the specific role Jews played in Europe gave economically powerful people as much de facto access to secular authorities as the political and religious status of the rabbis afforded. I would just suggest that the tradition amongst European Jews, that local practices are essentially paramount, and that rabbis led by persuasion rather than enforcing doctrinal authority via their status, has as much to do with this background as any issues relating to the fall of the Second Temple. After all, you can't coerce the community into changing their behavior if you have no coercive force at your disposal. I have studied conditions in majority Muslim countries far less than I have studied in European countries, but my understanding sort of reinforces my point. In these areas, the political situation was different, as Muslim rulers allowed a limited freedom of religion that included provisions for religious minorities enforcing their own rules and regulations in parallel legal systems. There were a bunch of different versions of this. At least this was true when all the parties involved in a case were the same religion, I should point out. My very limited understanding suggests that these areas did in fact see some development of hierarchies in Jewish communities in some areas of the Muslim world. That said, the political infrastructure of the Islamic world in general was arguably no more stable over the long term than in Europe. Which is to say that while the Islamic empires often covered large areas, after the first few caliphal dynasties, the Muslim world fragmented, and the borders of these competing empires moved around a lot, and there was a lot of empty space in between. While there were some regional hierarchies, especially early on, usually such structures as existed were limited to major urban centers and their hinterlands when they hosted large Jewish populations. There was still no pope, there was no presbytery, there was no bishops. For the most part. So all that is to say, in my view, the rabbis didn't gain compulsive power over their communities beyond their persuasive abilities. I don't view this as something that is inherent to Judaism, but a product of history. Part of that history may be, as Aidan suggests, a result of the destruction of the Second Temple. I would suggest that a slightly larger part might be played by the lack of compulsive violence enjoyed by the rabbis, due to the fact that Jews were always a despised minority without political power until after the point in time when compelling religious conformity was a done thing. Next up, Aiden critiqued the narrative Ira and I discussed of the creation of the Reform and Conservative Movements. Leaving aside some of the specific details upon which we disagree, details which would require us to define things like when exactly the European Enlightenment ended, and that's a hole with no bottom, there is a broader point that the narrative we told was, let's say, extremely incomplete. Aiden noted that more conservative strains of thought existed across the pale of Jewish settlement in Eastern and Central Europe long before the migration to the United States. The narrative of the conservative movement stemming from one dinner party gone wrong and the related narrative of German versus Russian Jews being the root of the conflict glosses over this reality. In fact, the seeds of this dispute already existed in Europe. As Aidan studied this subject in college, I will generally bow to his superior background knowledge. My own education here is much weaker than I would prefer. That said, the narratives we presented in our interview were not intended to be comprehensive, merely an overview of the very recent Jewish history as a way to introduce those unfamiliar with the subject into the broad strokes of the development of the strains of Jewish thought most relevant in the United States. If some of the stories we presented as real were in fact apocryphal, I'm sure I can speak for Ira here when I say that we apologize. The truth will out. Just for the record, actually, my family's background are are as Russian Jews who are generally more associated with the conservative movement, which actually sort of my family's background is weird. In any case, Aiden's final point was that while we touched on Jewish numerology, we did not do the subject justice. There's actually a ton of numerology in Ashkenazi tradition, and as Hayden says, much of this stemmed from a mystical, slightly anti-clerical tradition in Eastern Europe that ultimately helped contribute to the rise of groups like the Haredi, who were thoroughly underrepresented in the conversation, all of which I agree with. And bringing up the Haredi and how they were underrepresented, this brings us back to Rabbi Sendler, who had one short postscript in his letter that I wanted to share with you in a long quote, and so I wanted to wait to the end of the episode to share it. Uh, It's a lot of fun. I should just preface this by saying that Kabbalah, you know what? Just Google Kabbalah if you don't know what it is. Quote, The acceptability of the use of magic, etc. on Shabbos actually has quite a presence in halachic literature. Rabbi Mosef Schofer, volume 6, number 29, quotes Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, 17th century, who questions the Talmudic statement that Moses wrote 13 Torah scrolls on the day of his death for it is elsewhere recorded that Moses died on Shabbos. He answers that Moses wrote them through recourse to Kabbalistic formulas. Rabbi Moshe Shofer agrees that work done through magic or Kabbalah is permitted, and cites a Talmudic source for this. The Maesh Rokeach, in his Glosses on Maimonides, Shabbos 24-7, disagrees, contending that it is prohibited to perform actions on Shabbos through magic. Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanelovsky died 1986, as an essay on responsibility to pay damages for loss through supernatural means. Kelios Yakov Baba Kama number 1. I think that is the number. I'm too lazy to look it up, he says. Actually, there is an extensive Talmudic passage that at least bears scrutiny when discussing this question. Shabbos 43a, where the Talmud discusses whether it's permissible to travel out of one's personal Shabbos space, roughly 3,000 feet, while traveling above the ground. Rashi explains that the traveler used kabbalistic means to levitate. Thus, presumably I- I'm interpreting this, they had to have this conversation about whether it's permissible to move out of your shava space by going 3000 feet up in the air, and Rashi is explaining that the person who did it was using kabbalistic means to levitate in order to initiate this conversation. Other rules dictate you can't move left or right, but can you go straight up? <laughs> Thank you very much to Rabbi Sendler and to Aiden for their comments. Thank you again to Ira for conversing with me and for everyone who listened and enjoyed that conversation as much as I have. Tune in next time for another episode and bye for now. This episode was brought to you by Duncan, who was going nuts this entire time.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods